Every year in July, um, there is a large and long bike race in France called the Tour de France. And uh, if you enter that race, there's a good chance you'll see a lot of France. Uh, it takes three weeks to, to tour the country, and of course, it tours through the countryside of France. In the same way, the chapter of Psalms that we're in right now, Psalm 119, is a tour to the Christian life. You want to know about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ wholeheartedly, to pursue him with all your might? Psalm 119 tells us. You want to know what obstacles you'll face, what challenges you'll face in the Christian life? Psalm 119 tells us. It's a tour of the Christian life. We have seen so far in the first three stanzas how this has been being revealed to us. You'll notice in the first stanza, the first eight verses, the Aleph stanza, it promises to bring happiness to those who will seek God. So the Holy Spirit begins by wooing us into a relationship with himself, a relationship with God, a forgiveness of sins, the pursuit of holiness by promising us things like happiness the things we enjoy. Then the second stanza, the Bet stanza, uh, tells us how we can seek holiness. If the first stanza teaches us uh, the promises regarding holiness, the second stanza teaches us how we can seek it for ourselves. You want to be holy? Here's how to do it, is what the second stanza teaches. Store up the Word of God, speak out the Word of God, delight in the Word of God, and meditate on the Word of God. That will guide you into holiness a pursuit of God. Now we are in the middle of the third stanza, the Gimel stanza, and each of these stanzas, of course, is named after a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is the third eight-verse stanza, and in this stanza we've learned about the earthly consequences for those who will, in fact, pursue holiness. And those things are difficult. The author has laid them out for us. We've seen that to pursue holiness means that you'll experience alienation, Isolation, scorn, contempt, and slander. So you truly, you're truly convinced you want to be a holy person, someone who pursues God with all their heart? Then expect these things. That's what the author is saying. And these consequences of seeking holiness result in an understanding and an embracing of a sojourning mentality. So what does it mean to live on this planet as a sojourner, a temporary resident? Well, this stanza and the next, the Dallas stanza, teaches us what that means. These stanzas teach us that the sojourner will understand the necessity of God's provision. Look at verse 17. You see the necessity of God's provision if you're going to be a sojourner. In verse 18, you see the necessity of God illuminating his word to your heart and mind. In verse 20, you see a passion that's required for God's word in order to pursue his word. And now here in verse 21, we're going to see the importance of avoiding all forms of pride as we pursue holiness and attempt to keep this dependent sojourner mentality. So listen as I read for you verse 21. You rebuke the insolent, that word is another word for prideful, you rebuke the prideful accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And so what I want to point out to you today is that running from pride to Jesus is the point of this passage. If you're going to be a sojourner, that follows Christ wholeheartedly, you must flee from 
pride and to Christ. Charles Bridges said concerning pride, there is no sin more abhorrent to God's character. It is as if we were taking the crown from his head and placing it upon our own. It is making a God of himself, acting from himself and for himself. Charles Spurgeon, concerning the same topic, says, Pride lies at the root of all sin. If men were not arrogant, they would not be disobedient. He's saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor John, are you, are you saying, is Spurgeon saying that we're all prideful people? Yes, that's what I'm saying. All of our pride grows out of this particular idea, pride. And so I want to I unpack this verse for you today so that you have a clear understanding of what it is you're to run from and who it is you're to run to, all right? So let's look at the first point that I want to show you here. The first is the prideful wander. This verse describes, verse 21, describes the conduct of prideful people and it does so in general terms, uh, but it also shares with us God's view of prideful people and uh, how he thinks of them. He calls them accursed. This, this verse says he rebukes them. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that the prideful people referred to in this verse wander. They wander from God's commandments. What kind of wandering are we talking about? Even though we can trace all of our wandering, all of our sin back to pride, there's two kinds of wandering that, that I need to clarify for you. First is this, wandering out of weakness. If you look at verses, verse 176 of this same psalm, it describes a wandering away from God as a lost sheep. All right, it's not, it's not a, a, a belligerent wandering, it's simply a lost sheep. It's, it's almost kind of sad to see. Uh, how we could probably dis describe this is it's, uh, it's a wandering that maybe is, is, comes out of uh, a response to something or a reaction to something. You didn't see it coming, it surprises you and react in a way that's sinful, but it's not a, it's not a, a belligerent act against God. If you're going to wander away from God, this is the kind of wandering you want to do. Wandering because of weakness could include sins of reaction, but also sins of ignorance. Yes, the Bible calls sins of ignorance sin. You and I sin, and we don't even know we're sinning. We, we at times here at Sun Valley Church, confess sins of omission, not doing things you should. Those are, could include sins of of ignorance. You're not even sure you're supposed to be doing it. So this is a, this is a, a wandering from weakness. Uh, but these are no less sinful. It's just not what this particular verse is addressing. Um, if, if there is a wandering out of weakness, it's, it's sin, but it's not as bad as the wandering that's described here. The wandering that's described here in verse 21 is a wandering because of pride. It's, it's being obstinate. It's being belligerent against God. This is the wandering that the author intends. This type of wandering away from God's commands is more like contempt for a lawgiver. It believes that, that the opinion of that, of that wandering prideful person uh, and their reason is greater than God's opinion and reason. Uh, there was a kind of 
prideful reason that we see in Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's life that looks just like this. You remember he, he lifted his eyes up and, and lifted up himself and said, I'm as great as God. He thought that everything in his, in his kingdom was a result of his smarts and his effort. And of course we know the story how that went. Nebuchadnezzar took seven years for God to break him of his pride and yet God in his mercy did so. So what kind of pride are we talking about? The kind of wandering you're talking about is a wandering based on pride, not weakness. So what kind of pride must we think about? And the first is moral pride, and that is a pride that's horizontal, a pride that we might struggle with amongst ourselves, each other. Uh, looking down on others who are different than us is a kind of moral pride. Uh, it's, it's thinking that we're superior to others because of our race or our financial status or uh, educational background or personal superiority of some kind, uh, even family. Like, look at my kids. My kids are, are so well-adjusted. My kids are, are the smartest kids in the class. My kids are, and you know, fill in the blank. Uh, that's, a, that's a moral pride. Amazingly, most people around you recognize your pride, although we can go for a long time oblivious to it which is why we must talk about the signs of pride, and we'll do so in a second. But if you find yourself posting reasons for humili your humility on Facebook and writing a book called Humility and How I Attained It, there's your first clue <laughs> about your struggle with pride. And since you brought up Facebook, um, <laughs> Facebook, in my opinion, as you've heard me say more than once, is an incubator for moral pride. Uh, we've determined somehow that talking about ourselves and arguing arrogantly with people, as long as it's on Facebook, is okay. That, who wrote that rule? Zuckerberg, I think. That's who. Uh, it's not okay to do those things. 1 Peter 5 says it like this, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this pride is certainly sinful. This pride does offend God and many of the people around us, but this is not the kind of pride addressed in this verse. The kind of pride that, that is addressed in this verse is not a moral pride, it's a spiritual pride. It's not thinking that I'm better than you, it's, it's thinking I'm equal to God. <laughs> Two different kinds of pride. You see, the first kind of pride, the moral pride, is, is, a, is a horizontal condition. Spiritual pride is a vertical condition. It affects how we relate to God. And that's the kind of pride that's being dealt with here in verse 21. The, the, that's the kind of pride that the psalmist has in view, and we read of this throughout Scripture, but one particular, particularly clear place is in Nehemiah 9, verse 16. It says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They resisted God. They didn't think they had to submit to him. In fact, they said, we're equal to you. Get out of our face. Was the attitude that Nehemiah was addressing. This kind of pride is digging in of heels, refusing to follow God's commands, thumbing your nose at his authority, and so forth. This is, this is the the kinds of pride that, that the author is dealing with. These are the kind of wanderings that we need to be concerned with. 
the prideful people spoken of in this verse wander pridefully. Now, what are some signs of pride that we might be able to identify? Before I get uh, too far into this point, I want to mention a couple things. One of the, the challenges of identifying spiritual pride, which is the root of all of our sin, is dealing with a heart that it itself is deceived and interested in protecting the place of the origin of corruption. So your heart, it, it's, it, it is able to do this hideous thing to blind its owner to the sin that lies within. That's the nature of each of our hearts. It wants to protect that place where sin originates. It won't let anything in to access that and to destroy it. A dangerous attitude that points toward pride is not feeling any necessity to examine yourself of the, or for the, pride, the sin of pride. If you don't think that you have to examine yourself from time to time concerning this sin, it should be a yellow flag to you. Thinking that sermons are meant for others is an example of this. I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon on pride. Might be a, another yellow flag. Um, the following can identify those stiff-necked, prideful wanderers that this passage is speaking about. And of course, these identifications are, are not meant for the people not in this room. The first is this, neglect of God. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, referring to God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So it's easy to see the secular man's neglect of God, so I don't need to emphasize that, I don't think, this morning. Uh, but this room, on the other hand, is full of religious people who need to hear of the danger of neglecting God. Do you personally neglect God? Is he important to you? Is, could someone from the outside look at your life and say, yeah, God is important to that person? The Puritan author and pastor Stephen Charnock spoke of Christians who were practical atheists. Practical atheists are those who claim to believe in God, claim to embrace the gospel, but continued living as if there were no God at all. Their lives look no different than their unsaved neighbors. Worldly things consume the hours of their day, just like their secular acquaintances. There is really no evidence of the presence of God in their lives, a neglect of God. And the heart is so deceitful, they can't even see it. Is there a prideful veil covering the reality of this sin in your heart? A neglect of God. And... and and your heart will do things like this to try to excuse it or justify it. I'm too busy. I get up too early. I can't read my Bible. I have this going on or that going on. I can't participate here, can't do that. I've got reasons for everything. A neglect of God. The second is an opposition to God. We're talking about the signs of pride. The first is a neglect of God, and the second is an opposition to God. James 4, 6 identifies this particular problem. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, there, there are prideful people out there, in here, close to you. 
Um, and again, it's no great feat to demonstrate the secular person's opposition to God by how they live or how many of them may think, but, but this room is full of religious people who claim otherwise. And of course, you know, I've said this already, but sermons are not preached to people outside the room today. Uh, unless, of course, they're listening online somehow during the week. That's, that's different. But primarily, this sermon is for you. God has ordained an appointment for you to be here, for you to hear this sermon, so that you might have to address certain issues in your life about this very thing. So, do you think that you oppose God in your life? Consider that briefly. Are you in the habit of any sin in your life without a battle? Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't have battles with sin. We all have battles with sin. But are you, have you, are you still fighting? Or have you given up? That's opposition to God. Do you find yourself neglecting God's word? That's opposition to God. Spiritual pride demonstrated by a neglect of and opposition to God is really a test of wills between you and God. Who's going who's to flinch first? Who's going to bow? Who's going to serve? Who's going to win the day? God or you? You see, the prideful not only contend with God for supremacy, but they would dispose or dethrone him if they could. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I wish God wasn't. If so, these things are meant to alarm you. Let me expand on this opposition to God idea a bit in case it's still unclear to you. <clears throat> we can oppose God by opposing his authority. Um, sin really is the outworking of an opposition to God's authority. Whenever you sin, you're saying, I don't agree with God's command. I think it's designed for other people, or I think it's foolish, or I think it's impractical. And so I've decided to take things into my own hands and do what I think is right, not what God thinks is right. That is opposition to his rightful authority. Um, his commandments are clear. And when we sin, what is that other than rebellion? This is what Nathan said to David, the man after God's own heart. when he confronted his sin with Bathsheba. He said, why, David, have you despised the word of the Lord to be done what is evil in his sight? So the man after God's own heart, one who wrote many of the Psalms that we enjoy, who's the, the shepherd of Israel, opposed God at one point in his life. The point is, my point is, and I think the Holy Spirit's point is, if David can do it, you can do it. Right? Don't let your heart deceive you. Don't allow the veil that you've established to protect that, that place of corruption in your own soul keep you from dealing with reality. The other thing to explain opposition to God is, not just opposing his authority, but opposing his power. Contending with God over his right and authority and willingness to deal with your rebellion. 
God, of course, is well able to enforce his laws, but many times that does not seem to divert the person who is prideful. It's astonishing, in fact. 1 Corinthians 10, says this, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then the most basic question in the universe concerning God's power, are we stronger than he? Of course not. Pride is a heinous animal. It reveals itself by disdain for inferiors, neglect of equals, and contempt for superiors. And of course, the, more serious, the most serious of all these is, is a contempt for the superior. And who is most superior other than God? And so the worst form of pride is a contempt for God, which is why the author is pointing towards that here. He has authority over all of his creation. No one or no thing is exempt from God's rule. And we know these things, but to remind you so that you can't say you didn't hear, all men are like grass, the Bible teaches us. No one is exempt from God's rule. Everything is subject to him. We are here today, gone tomorrow. Um, The wind blows chaff away just like God blows life away. God's rights involve every area of our lives. We do not have the right, the authority, or power to keep God out of any area of our lives, although we try. We suggest, to ourselves at least, that God can have all sorts of areas of our lives except this one place. Right? We Don't come into this room. God, keep your distance from my pornography habit. Keep your distance from my thought life. Keep your distance from my money. You see, that is opposition to God. God manages our affairs, and he has a right and authority to do so, and the power to do so. As Paul said in quoting from Isaiah, that God is the potter and we are the clay. Let me just read for you where Paul got that idea from Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with him, that is God, who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, why are you making me? Or your work has no handles. So we have, we have those kind of things actually going on. Maybe even in our own lives. God, why did you make me like, like this? Why did you give me this pathetic personality? You know, why did you put me with this person? Why do I have this job or no job? You realize that the handles aren't even here on this object. It doesn't work. You see, God not only has the right to form us into any type of vessel he wants, but he also created the clay of the vessel. He has double right, double authority, double power to do what he will. And yet we find ourselves consistently and regularly contending with him over these things. His authority, friends, again... It is not dependent on anyone or anything. Many may think that they can stand with a fist in the face of God and say, you have no right, when in fact he does. It's a gross mistake to think such things, which is why Peter says in his book, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, not humble yourselves under God's benevolent hand. He says mighty. 
So humility and obedience, not arrogance and resistance, are the only viable responses to God's authority in our lives. Are there hints of pride that have been revealed here a little bit this morning? Let me take you back to Psalm 119, verse 21. Look at your Bible for a second at that verse, and I want you to see the judgment on the prideful. Does God just, you know, look the other way? Ah, That's no big deal. No, actually not. Verse 21 says that the proud are what? Cursed. What does this mean? Those who rebelliously continue to resist God are under his curse. What does this mean? Well, listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That kind of is broad, isn't it? A little bit unflexible. According to this verse and others, many others, everyone who does not abide by God's laws are cursed. That would include every person in this room. There is no exception. It sounds like bad news. And if that's your judgment of it, then you're right. This is bad news. But good news is coming, so bear with me. Let me, let me ask you a uh, question, see what you think of this. What if God was merciful and kind to only judge you on one day of your life and you got to chose the day? How would that go for you? God said, okay, you choose the day, I'll only judge you for that day that you present to me. How would that go? Would you survive the judgment? Don't think I would. Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should count should, or should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? The, the obvious answer is no one. You see, the penalty of prideful disobedience under the curse is substantial. The word cursed is a small, one-syllable word, and yet it holds much weight. This word includes all temporal and eternal conditions. Cursed is not something that we would just throw out and say, ah, that's no big deal. You know, no, it's significant. Let me, let me show you how significant it is. It affects our mind. The more we know about God and his laws, the more our soul naturally resists him. You ever recognize that in your own life? The more you read the scriptures, the more in trouble you feel. Uh, Paul said this in his exposition of sin in Romans chapter 7. And it's because of the nature of sin. God's law, because of the nature of sin, exacerbates our guilt Let me give you an illustration. When you see a sign that says, don't walk on the grass, what's the first thing you want to do? Walk on the grass. When you see a speed limit sign that says 30, how fast do you go? 40 or some sinners go 30. The good people go 35. All right, some sinners say, ah, 30, 40. No, the good people in here go 35, right? And I don't know who said 40, so. I'm just kidding. No, what is this? Why is this true of us? Why are we always pushing the envelope? Here's the answer. Three letters, sin. 
That's why. Part of the curse of sin lies in how it affects our mind. We always want to go further than we should. We always want to walk on things we shouldn't. Our sin either causes us great guilt and fear of judgment or it calluses our heart and conscience against those things. It also affects our living, every part of our living. Listen to this amazing verse in Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Curses shall be in the city and curses, curse shall you be in the field. Curse shall, you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. You can't get anywhere without the curse affecting you in mind and living. So when we encounter sickness, which we all do, decline, which we all do or will, broken relationships, any kind of vice, these are all part of the curse that meet us where we live, everywhere we live. Not only that, pride even affects our worship. The Puritans talked about this quite often. They said things like, we need to repent of our repentance. I mean, think about what was going through your mind 30 minutes ago when we read that corporate confession. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many were thinking of, of March Madness during the confession? How many were thinking of that pot roast or Five Guys Burgers that you're going to get after this? Instead of the confession, we're sitting here, wah, 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 all the time. Nice, juicy burger is awaiting me. You see, it affects every part of us, um, even our worship. Thirdly, it affects our eternity. How are you going to live in eternity, friends? Isn't that an important question to answer? How are you going to live in eternity? What's your eternal life going to look like? If you have rejected God and arrogantly resisted his authority throughout your earthly existence, what can you expect in the next life, a life to come? I think that's a fair question. Jesus addressed that very question in Luke chapter 12 when he told a story of a rich man who didn't care too much about God's authority or God himself. He said, and I will say to my soul... This is the rich man speaking that Jesus was identifying. Soul, you have made ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, friends, the curse affects our eternity, not just our current experience. It doesn't just affect our current thoughts and in our habits of thinking, it doesn't just affect our living, it affects eternity. This is a serious curse. This is, this is something that, that, you know, these, these books we read on, on like, what is it, Lord of the Rings, how are we going to lift this curse from this land? Why don't you go, go melt the ring? Well, it's not that easy. Um, although there are spiritual connections in that book if you want to pay attention. Let's, let's continue through this particular verse, this critically important verse that addresses 
those who wander pridefully. It says they're accursed, speaking of the judgments of those who wander pridefully. And it says at the very beginning of the verse that God rebukes them. You see that? Your rebuke. So God's rebuke is, is what you've been hearing for the last 30 minutes. God's rebuke is addressing the waywardness of all of our hearts. God's rebuke is bringing scripture to bear on our experience of our own pride and the battle we have with it. Now, somehow this last point um, evaded my email to Deb. Um, I'm pretty sure it was my fault, um, but I would like to blame Deb. <clears throat> this is the fourth point in your bulletin. Hope you have room for it because it's the most important point. The hope for the prideful. Roman numeral number four. The hope for the prideful. Friends, you've been accused of being prideful people this morning by your pastor. You've been uh, beat down by a narrow-minded preacher who doesn't understand life, evidently. And yet, if it's true, if Spurgeon is correct, if Bridges is correct, and a host of theologians throughout Christian history are correct, we are all prideful. And that leaves us in a bad situation because there's curse rest on the prideful. There's only two options for us, really. You either stand under God's law or you stand under God's grace. If you remain in the state in which, into which you were born, you continue in your natural state and are under God's law, hence God's condemnation. God's law applies to everyone who is born. Every human is subject to expectations of God and punishments for failure to meet those expectations. This is what Scripture clearly teaches. This is what God teaches. But he teaches it for a reason. To create a result. The, the curse remains on us until we turn away from our prideful independence of Christ, self-directed living, and turn to Christ and dependence on him. Listen to a few verses that address this directly. This is Jesus in John 3 speaking. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So you see the two options there? Believe or not believe. Obey or not obey. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not have life, but the wrath of God, the curse of God, remains on him. There's only two options for us. God or not God. Submit to him or, or rebel against him. Be under God's law or be under God's grace. The choice for the rational person is simple, but because of pride and, and the veiling of the heart is real, I can sit up here and say the most simple thing and you will walk away blind and not understanding. Galatians 3, Paul speaks of this same thing. Paul said, Christ, Jesus Christ, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How did he do it, Paul? By becoming a curse for us. Do you know how God solves the curse problem in your life? Jesus takes your curse. 
This is really good news. This is what we're the good news part. For it is written, curses everyone who hanged on the tree. How did Jesus take the curse for you? How does he take it from us? He takes it to the cross. He pays the penalty of that curse himself. Isn't that good news? That's the best news you will ever hear. Whether or not you understand is between you and God. (laughs) When Christ offered himself, you can either accept or reject that. Depending on your decision, you were either condemned or not condemned. Either under his law or under his grace. John 3.18, again, same context as John 3.16. 17, now 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Like we heard read earlier by Josh, there is, there, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So where do you stand this morning? Again, don't think of those people who should be hearing this sermon. Think about those who are hearing this sermon. Do you stand under the law of God to be condemned in your pride? Or do you stand under the grace of God to be forgiven of your sin? Have you run to Christ with your pride? You know he knows you have it, right? God knows your pride problem. He dealt with it in Adam and Eve's life. They had the same problem we do. Their decision to rebel against God and and take of the fruit was based on pride. They thought their opinion was more important than God's. And so they did it. God knows how to deal with pride. And it's called Calvary. That's how he deals with it. So there's only one way, friends, to get out of the curse. And if you're interested in this, pay close attention. We must flee to Christ. That's the only way out of the curse. We must flee to Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says about this. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is the hope, or better question, who is the hope set before us? Christ, right? Yeah. In the Old Testament, God established seven cities of refuge in the the country of Israel. You might remember this remote story, but as you read through the first five books of the Bible, you come across this occasionally. These cities of refuge. You know what the cities of refuge were about? Protecting the life of people who have accidentally killed somebody. So Jewish law was this. If you killed somebody accidentally, no matter what the accident, their relatives had the right to chase you down and kill you. That was legal unless you went to a city of refuge. If you could get there before they caught you, you were free to stand trial, a fair trial. If they caught you before you got in the gate, they could kill you with no problems at all. So, occasionally, you're, out, you're a farmer, you're out tilling your soil, some guy runs past 90 miles an hour, you know where he's going, don't you? And it's not to the bathroom. He's going to the city of refuge. He is running to that place of safety. And, and this, 
these cities of refuge were designed by God and inserted into the Old Testament to teach us about the necessity of you and me running to Christ so that we don't get killed for our offenses. You've got you to you get to that city of refuge. You've got to get to that person of refuge, Jesus Christ. So if we truly understand and embrace what is offered to us in Christ, it results, friends, in a love for Christ. This is where we get back to the point of Psalm 119. It is a tour of the Christian life. If you truly are going to run from pride, you're going to run to Christ. And if you truly have embraced Christ, you will embrace the sojourner's mentality. You will follow him and not the world. Paul speaks of it like this in 1 Corinthians. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Friends, if you love the Lord, you will obey his commands. You will follow him. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. You won't be. You will continually have to run to that city of refuge, to that person of refuge, day in and day out. But this love for Christ will always be the forefront of your thinking It'll always drive you to, to deeper levels of obedience and service to, to your Savior, to your city, your person of refuge. The Apostle John knew a little bit about this. He says this in 1 John, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. You say you love God? Okay, good. That's a good place to start now. Let's keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Before... before we leave this morning, let me, let me just give you a couple closing thoughts that I think might be worthy of your consideration. First is this, as you seek to flee to Christ from sin, from pride, you need to beware of false humility. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, false humility acts the part but remains stubborn in mind and heart convinced of their superiority, resistant to advice and direction from wise counselors given to us by God. I see this occasionally in ministry. Um, people come in complaining of their struggles or seeking advice for some circumstance in their life, but they're unwilling to receive the counsel given. In many cases, there's an intellectual realization of God's superiority and his transcendence above all things, which should convince them of their own depravity and need but there remains an unwillingness, a resistance to give in. And this is one thing I want you to consider. We need to realize that an unfortunate characteristic of pride is hard-heartedness. It's a natural resistance to what God has said. Prideful people may come across as compliant and polite towards most people, but are incredibly resistant to God. They would never think of intentionally dishonoring another human being, but they don't think twice about dishonoring God. Many prideful people have good manners and submit to those over them in the workplace, in the home, in the church, are respectful to people for the most part, but won't seek God's favor or humble themselves under him and his knowledge. So as humble as anyone may act, they remain enslaved to pride until 
they have fully submitted to God with a broken heart over their spiritual pride, seeking his forgiveness by running to Christ. What I'm, what I'm encouraging and asking you to think about is to find that path out of pride to Christ. Have that well-beaten path to Christ in your life. You shouldn't have to look for that path. It shouldn't be hidden in the underbrush. It should be well-worn to Christ. In order to be reconciled to God, pride must be broken. You remember this, Jesus in his very first sermon, very first point of his sermon, said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's those who are humble. Jesus is describing those people who have run from their pride, acknowledged it, and run to Christ. Broken pride is the only possible thing that gets us a broken heart. And God does not despise a broken heart, does he? He readily accepts it. God specializes, friends, in breaking the pride of arrogant people. And it generally comes by way of a broken heart through some serious loss or some serious failure. This is what Jeremiah said concerning this, with weeping they shall come. Why? Because they've been broken. God broke them. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. God specializes in breaking us. Jesus' second point of his Sermon on the Mount was this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who've been broken, who are sorry for their pride, who don't want it, who acknowledge it and hate it and want to get away from it. All throughout Scripture, we see God's desires for us. He desires a humble people, doesn't he? This is what God desires for you, humility. Turning from a self-sufficient life, turning from a life of pride, and running to that person of refuge, Jesus Christ, acknowledging your sin, turning your back on all things prideful. You see, the sojourner regularly examines their heart from any, for any hint of pride, and aggressively attacks it whenever they find it, remembering the work of Christ, fleeing to him, and embracing his forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, you are gracious to us, slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. I want to pray for the people in this room who might be struggling with pride, and even for those in this room who don't think they are, but are certainly doing so. God, we acknowledge that you are supreme over all things. We acknowledge that that we really have no argument with you, our creator, our, our potter, and yet we still have this this innate prideful condition that we can't seem to shake, that we we continue to fall back into. I'm asking for your mercy, Father, on the people in this room, that they will, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through 
the preaching of your word this morning, recognize the sinful condition of their heart, the pride that remains, and take that to the cross of Christ, take that to the person of refuge, Jesus Christ, and pour it at his feet along with their humility and acknowledge their need of Christ, acknowledge their need, God, of you granting mercy, granting uh, grace, granting forgiveness in Christ. I pray that every person in this room will do that this morning, right where they sit. We thank you, God, that because of Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those of us who come, even with all of our filthy sin, and lay it at his feet. You, Father, sent your Son, who is called the friend of sinners. And we most certainly are that. We are sinners, and we desire and need your friendship. God, minister to us as we contemplate the goodness of Christ, the forgiveness of God in Christ, and turn all of our sin over to him. And I pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.